want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, my plan at this time is in January we're going to start the Gospel of John, okay, and start our journey through that. I'm excited about it. I'm preparing for it now. But there's a couple subjects I wanted to hit before we get to that. And one of them uh, today, I was reading Thessalonians a couple weeks ago, and this really struck me, some of the things that were said here. So I thought we'd talk about it, and uh, nothing probably too deep for the most of you, but I, I think it's good information here just to help us, and maybe in sharing this whole idea of preterism with those around us. <clears throat> and my question this morning, what I want to talk to you about today is, are the Thessalonian Christians still waiting for the coming of Christ? Now, the obvious answer is, well, no, um, they're dead, okay? <laughs> they're not around anymore, so they can't be waiting for the coming of Christ. Um, but most contemporary Christians are still waiting, you know? I mean, it was clear that they had an anticipation of the coming of Christ. They were, the Thessalonian Christians were waiting for it, but most believers think they didn't see it, but most believers are still waiting for it 2,000 years later. I mean, most of the church is still waiting. So the topic of the second coming of Christ, I think, is a very familiar theme in Christianity. People are constantly making predictions about when it will happen. It seems that everything that happens in this world is a sign of the times. Everything's a sign of the times. You know, everything that you read in the newspaper, they take that, you know, the prophecy preachers take that, and when they fail like they did big time in October... You know, a bunch of them failed in October, then they just, you know, rewrite and keep on going. But the church as a whole is looking forward to the coming of Christ. And it's soon. It's always soon. So for our time this morning, I want to look at some of the verses in First and Second Thessalonians and see what they teach us about the coming of Christ. Um, let's get some context here in the Thessalonians. All right, Paul, together with Silas, Timothy, and Luke, had established a beachhead for the gospel in Europe, in the city of Philippi, in Macedonia, around AD 51. And Paul and Silas were arrested, and they were beaten following Paul's casting out of a demon, a slave, out of a slave girl, who, you know, had used to bring profit to her masters through fortune telling. Pay no attention to that date. I'm waiting for someone else to go off. All right. As Paul and Silas lay in a dungeon, singing praise to Yahweh, an earthquake destroys the prison. The jailer and his family come to faith in Christ. As a result of that, they're joined together with Lydia and her household, and they form the first church on the European continent. Now, Luke would remain on to shepherd that young church, but Paul and his companions head south on the Ignatian Way um, as soon as they're released from prison. He says, now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. All right, so they travel, they come down to Thessalonica here. That's that's where they're at. This is where the church is beginning here. Now, you can see here on this map, you get uh, some glimpse of what's going on there and their journeys from Philippi. They leave Philippi, 
And it appears they just passed through Amphipolis. It's about 30 miles down the road. And then they seem to just pass through Apollonia, which was about 63 miles away. And then they come to Thessalonica, about 100 miles from Philippi. And Paul and Silas had just been beaten, remember, in Philippi, okay? Take a severe beat and they're put into stocks. I don't think they could have walked 100 miles in three days. Most people today couldn't walk 100 miles in three days without a beating, okay? These guys had a good, brutal beating. It had been very painful, even if they're in excellent shape, and they're used to walking. This journey would have taken much longer. So my conclusion is they traveled on horseback. That was a method of travel back then, and I think they used horses to get down there. Uh, you know, again, they, they took a severe beating, and they just traveled 100 miles. They didn't get in their car and turn on the air conditioning and listen to their music on the way down there. It was quite a, quite a rough trip. All right, well, let's talk about Thessalonica a little bit. The city was founded in uh, 315 B.C., and it was named in honor of Philip II's daughter, Thessalon- Thessalon- <laughs> Thessalon- <laughs> Thessalonicus, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it was a trading city of about 200,000 people. It was the capital of Macedonia. Three great rivers came through it and it converged into the sea. So it was a very important port. It was also on the Ignatian Highway, so so much went right through that travel at that time. Everyone trading east and west would come into the city. It was populated by Greeks, by Roman citizens, by Jews and Orientals. Now the Jewish religious influence was having quite an effect on the population because when Paul got there, he found a great many God-fearing Greeks among the citizens. Now, when he gets to Thessalonica, they went into the synagogue. All right, he says, now, what do you think the first thing Paul did when he got there was to do? Well, if he got there on Friday, I think the first thing he did would go to the synagogue. But if he didn't get there on Friday, what do you think the first thing he did was? This is really weird. He got a job. He got a job. He started tent making. In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul says this, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul gets there and he gets a job to start to support himself so he can minister to these people. And he makes it clear in this letter how careful he was. He didn't want to be a financial burden to those people. Just like preachers today, right? <laughs> <laughs> Now, there were many traveling philosophers at this time who had a reputation for selfishness, making the rounds in that day. And the apostle didn't want to be included among that group, so he made tents all through the week. But on Saturday, he'd go to the synagogue and he would teach the scriptures. He also received two financial gifts from the Philippians while he was in Thessalonica, according to Philippians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. So there's people helping him, but he is not being a burden to the people he's trying to minister to. Now... Verse 2 says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scripture. Paul always started his ministry in the synagogue. It was a practice wherever he went. Why do you think he did this? Because these are the people that are looking through the scriptures. These are the people that are waiting for Messiah. He's got a ready-made place to preach. You know, and visitors could go into the synagogue and they could share. So he had a beautiful opportunity. That's where he could find the people looking for Messiah. He could give them, you know, tell them exactly what they're looking for. Now, the synagogue's not the temple. 
The synagogues are a completely different place than the temple. During the 400 silent years, you know, which people call them, from the book of Malachi to the beginning of the Gospels, is when the whole concept of rabbis in the synagogue arose. You don't find rabbis in the Old Covenant. Alright, you got prophets back there, you don't have any rabbis. Once Malachi ended, before the Gospel started, the, the Jews developed this system of the synagogue and the rabbis. In that time period, there were, the Hebrew people had a passion for the Scriptures. They wanted to learn what Yahweh had to say. And they needed a place where the Scriptures could be read, where the Scriptures could be taught. So they developed this whole idea of the synagogue. And the synagogue system offered a unique opportunity of making the Hebrew Scriptures available anywhere the Jews had been dispersed throughout the world. So they'd get a synagogue going, and they could get together and hear the Scriptures. There were three things the Jews did in the synagogues, and Gentiles could join and benefit from all of them. They'd read the Tanakh, all right, they had the scriptures there, so they would read from it, they would pray, and then they would try to make some application to their lives or what they were reading and praying about. Now, there was a synagogue located in every city in which there was at least 10 Jewish males. You had to have 10 guys. And part of that reason was because no less than seven men would be called upon to read portions of the Law and Prophets during their time. So you had seven men reading. Why'd you need ten? Nah, you know, some guys are not going to show up. So you got to have some backups, right? So you got to have at least ten men, all right? Then the ruler of the synagogue could, uh, could and would call on any competent or distinguished visitor to speak, to share, if they had something to share. And we see this in the life of Yeshua. He goes into the synagogue, he gets to stand up, he gets to share some things. So Yeshua and the apostles took great advantage of the practice, and it was just a system made, basically, you know, for the potential for the gospel to come in there and be taught. Now, how long were Paul and his missionary team in Thessalonica? We really don't know for sure. We know they're there for at least three weeks, probably a little bit longer. Acts 17.2 says that Paul reasoned with them from the Scripture. Now, reasoned here is from the Greek word dialegomai. It's a word from which we get our word like dialogue or dialectic. It's a word that originally referred to the Socratic method of communication in which there was a responsiveness on the part of the individuals. All right, questions would be thrown out like Plato and Socrates did, and answers would be given in other questions. And there was, there was a dialogue going on in the synagogue. Paul didn't just get up there and give a lecture. He allowed for questions. He allowed for dialect. And the imperfect tense here indicates a renewed kind of repeating and questioning. In other words, there was an exchange going on. I think we've really lost that today in America. You know, we come, we hear a lecture, Nobody says anything, you know, you know, and that's one of the reasons I do question and answer. I, I want, if you got a question, I want to hear it. And I've said this before, and I don't know that it ever will happen, but, you know, I want you to know that you're free to raise your hand and ask a question anytime you want. I don't interrupt you. Well, if you got a question, probably somebody else has that question too, and I would really like to clear it up while you're thinking about it. Because usually by the end of the service, you forget it, and then it never gets cleared up, you know? So I don't have a problem with that. And that, that was very, uh, very Jewish. I mean, the rabbis were always getting used to someone standing up, and they never felt it as an interruption. They felt it as God's timing to direct them in a certain method. So, you know, I know we're, we're used to more of a lecture format, but I think dialogue is really important. That's one of the reasons I answer questions. I, You know, and the purpose of the question and answer was if I say something you didn't understand, or if I say something that was wrong, you say, hey, you said this, and, you know, oh, yeah, I need to, I do need to correct that. That's not at all what I meant. So... Feel free, you know, if something seems to strike you as odd, don't, don't feel, you know, it's not really an interruption. I, I want to deal with it. I want to clear it up. Go, 
Go back to your... <laughs> yeah. So as he preached in the synagogue at Thessalonica, Paul would declare to the Jews that there was no salvation in Judaism. Nor was there salvation possible by means of the Roman philosophers, nor by two thousands of the mystery religions prevalent in that day. Salvation was to be found only in Yeshua, the Christ, the Messiah of God, whom the Jews rejected while he's here on earth. So Paul is basically saying, Judaism is over. You either accept the Messiah or you're done. That was all, you know, that was it. Messiah had come. It was time to move on. He was been predicted, been taught all through the scriptures if they were aware of it. So many weren't. Verse 4, he says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. All right, who is the them here? Well, it refers to the Jews of verse 1. Some of the Jews were persuaded that Yeshua was the Christ. And it makes sense. They've been looking for Messiah all their life. They, they were familiar with the Scriptures, and Paul would take those Scriptures and show them how Christ fulfilled every one of them. So they believed Paul's words. They put their faith in Yeshua. Not only the Jews believed, but also, he says, that a, a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks. These would be proselytes to Judaism. There were people, they were monotheistic Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel, had respected the Old Covenant and followed the teachings of it. They attended synagogue. They observed the Sabbath, and they practiced the main requirements of Jewish piety. They were there worshiping with the Jews. It says, but the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And I want you to get this in your thinking. Let this sink in. The gospel's being preached, and you got the Jews there stirring things up. All right, get in the countrymen, let's get a mob together. And they set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. It seems every time Paul finished teaching in the synagogue, the very next verse opens with these words, but the Jews, we see this over and over in the book of Acts. These Jews like Jonah of old, like the people of Nazareth, and like the Jews of Jerusalem later on, were greatly angered that a salvation of the Jews was being offered to Gentiles. They did not like that. And the Gentiles were placing their trust in him, and they were following Paul and the others, and the Jews just couldn't tolerate this. You read about Jonah, you know, and Jonah, when the Lord saved so many of those people in Nineveh, what did he say? I knew you were like this. That's why I didn't want to come. I knew you were gracious and loving and compassionate. That's why I didn't want to come to these people. I hate Ninevites. I wish they were all dead. He didn't want to preach the gospel to them. All right, so this mob assaults the house of Jason where the apostles and others were supposedly staying, and they sought to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of his brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Yeshua. All right, now notice that these men are saying that they're teaching something contrary. They're doing things contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So the Jews in Thessalonica began to persecute the missionaries, but they did it in such a way that the local authorities would think it was political. See, they're going against Caesar. See, they're not making a religious thing. You've got to make it political so they'll get in on, stop this whole thing from going on. And now, not finding Paul and Silas, they turned on Jason and some fellow believers and hauled them before the city rulers. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. 
And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So he goes on to Berea. So as he gets to Berea, you're familiar with Berea, right back into the city there, right into the synagogue. Well, Jason and the other new Christians were dragged to the court by the mob. And they're placed under a lot of pressure. The accusation was that Jason had entered in, entertained those who uh, had violated Roman law by claiming there's another king besides Caesar. And that king was Yeshua. So a judgment was made, a bond was paid by Jason, presumably a, a bond that there wouldn't be any further trouble, or maybe he made them agree to you get these guys out of town. What I want you to see this morning is the results of Paul and Silas and Timothy's visit to Thessalonica. We learn much about the believers in Thessalonica in the two letters that Paul wrote there. So please turn with me to, let's start at the first letter of Thessalonians, and let's see what happened, what was going on there. First of all, let me ask you, what is special about Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Anybody know what's special about these letters? This is the first inspired letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. They're the first inspired letters of the New Testament. These are the very first writings. As we saw, Paul and his companions were driven out of Thessalonica after only a brief stay by persecution that broke out there. He and his companions were forced to leave. They went to Berea. We're familiar with Berea, right? That's where the Bereans were, okay? And they studied the Scriptures. They found some good folks there. He goes from there all the way down to Athens, and that was his journey down to Athens. While he was in Athens, he tried to go back to Thessalonica because he wanted to minister to them more. He says this, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan thwarted us. So at least twice, Paul tried to return to Thessalonica, but Satan had hindered him. So while he was waiting in Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how the new converts were doing. He couldn't get away, so Timothy, you go up there. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens, so he stayed there alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as your faith. Now, while Timothy was in Thessalonica... Paul went on to Corinth, so he leaves Athens there, and he crosses over to Corinth, and he began to minister in the city of Corinth. And while he was in Corinth, Timothy came back from Thessalonica to report to him, and he brought him just a great report of what was going on there. When Paul heard it, he sat down and he wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians, so he's writing it from Corinth. About five months later, Paul wrote a second letter to them from Corinth because of a misunderstanding in the church, and these are the first letters in the New Testament. And any date we give it has to be approximate, but most people think it's around 80, 51 to 52 when these letters take place. What's really convicting is that these two letters are written to new converts. All right, please understand that. Many of whom were converts from pagan idolatry. These Christians at Thessalonica have been not even been Christians for a year. All right, they hear the gospel, they're brand new Christians, they're only several months old in the Lord when Paul writes these letters, and yet when you read these letters, and you look at the doctrinal content of these epistles, it's almost unbelievable. Almost every major doctrine of the Christian faith is mentioned. The amount of doctrine taught in this short span of time clearly demonstrates the priority of the apostles placed on doctrines in the Word of God. I mean, these guys understood a lot. These new converts out of pagan idolatry have a solid understanding of Christian doctrine. Now, most Christians today, 
even those who have been saved for decades, don't know enough about the Bible to discuss it intelligently. They really don't. And if pressed on any issue, they'll just say, my pastor says, or somebody says, you know, I heard somewhere, saw a movie. But here we see these new converts, many who have been worshiping idols all their lives, have a good grasp on Christian theology. Paul speaks to them about the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of assurance, doctrine of sanctification, doctrine of election, the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of man, judgment day, the second coming of Christ. He writes these things to them as they were, as if they were perfectly familiar with them. Notice what he says. Now, as the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Not even a year old Christians. You don't really need me to write you this stuff. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. You understand the second coming. You understand these things. We taught them to you. Then in a second letter, in referring to the events that would precede the second coming, Paul writes this. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So he explained all this stuff to them. When preaching in Thessalonica, obviously he preached on the judgment of God, the return of the Lord, their accountability to him. They knew all about the second coming. This is a remarkable thing. Because how many Christians can you say that of today? I mean, really. These converts are less than a year old. They didn't have the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. It was just beginning to be written. All they had was portions of the Tanakh and the teachings of Paul. Now compare them with us. We have the complete Bible, the pseudepigrapha, the Apocrypha, every imaginable Bible study tool you can get your hands on. We have the Bible on computer and can search through the whole thing in seconds. We have the Bible on our tablets. We have the Bible on our phones. Anytime we want, we can pull out and read Scripture. I have the Logos Library. I can search tons of volumes, the whole library for a certain topic or a certain... You know, I can just put this in the search engine and it goes through everything in the library. And in a few seconds... It pulls up everything that that subject or that thought is mentioned by anybody. It's amazing. But here's the thing. And yet, it appears that they knew way more than we do. Why? Why do we have so much? They had so little and yet they knew more. How do we differ from them? I think it's one word. One word causes us to differ, I think, from them, and that's desire. I believe they had a strong desire to know the Lord, whereas most Americans have a strong desire for wealth, entertainment, leisure, sports. Boy, put sports, that's a category. People go crazy. I mean, grown men coloring their bodies and writing letters on jumping up and down and acting like, you know, they just won the lottery because some guy... Took a ball and ran across a line with it. I don't, you know, it just, it's amazing to me, you know, what goes on in this country. So we have a strong desire for a lot of things, but we don't seem to have a strong desire for the things of Scripture. We don't seem to have a driving desire to know Yahweh. And I think this is a good point to give you my pitch for next year. It starts in December, okay? <laughs> The way you're going to get to know Yahweh is through the Scriptures. And the only way you're going to you know, spend real time in it is to make a plan and work a plan. Listen, I really believe 
that every Christian, everyone who names the name of Christ should read through their Bible at least once a year. I really just think that. That's basic. That's bottom line. It would take you 15 minutes a day. If you don't have 15 minutes a day for your Lord, there's something wrong with your schedule and with your life. Because we talk a lot about the Bible and the importance of it. We don't spend much time in it. So it's, it's December, people, so you're going to hear a lot about it. Because come January, I want you to have a reading plan. I want you to have a program. I want you to have something set so you're ready to go. All right? So you can get through this year. All right? Some of you that start in Genesis and end in Genesis every year, start in Exodus this year. Okay? <laughs> and in 66 years, you'll finally make it through the whole Bible. But we got to keep pushing on. All right? Really, it, I, can't, I can't emphasize the importance of just being familiar with the Word of God. Alright? So what happened to this church after Paul left? Well, these new converts were subject to severe persecution. Nothing new for us. We hear this every week from the voice of the martyrs. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea. Alright, so they're imitating the churches, the original church in Judea, And you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen. So they're imitating the churches. They're also going through the same suffering. Even as they did from the Jews. Who both killed the Lord Yeshua and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to all men. Now those in Thessalonica, they were suffering for their faith in Christ. It wasn't like America. You know, you get to become a Christian and, oh, great, now you get healthy, wealthy, and everything goes your way. No, they were suffering because of what they believed in. They were suffering for their faith, and it says they were suffering at the hands of their countrymen. Now, the reason they were suffering from their countrymen is because the Jews had stirred up their countrymen. We already read that in Acts. The Jews would come in and they go, oh, you got to get some of these people, you know, they're going against Caesar, and they'd get these things stirred up. The Jews were behind this. But Paul had taught them before he was forced to leave town that as believers, they were destined for affliction. This is not a real popular message in Christianity. He says, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction And so it came to pass, as you know. They were suffering, but like their teacher Paul, they continued to press on in the midst of their suffering. They continued to spread the word of God, even though they were, you know, they didn't back up and say, oh, we're suffering, we're going to stop. We're going to hide in a cave somewhere and just pray that, you know, for the rapture. We got to get out of here. No, they went, they pressed on. Look what it says in verse 8 of chapter 1. It says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul, you guys are doing great. You're spreading the gospel in the midst of your suffering. You're pushing on. He says, you also endured the same suffering even as they did from the Jews. So those in Thessalonica were experiencing the same suffering that the first Christians in Judea suffered. You remember what that was? Remember what happened when they started preaching the gospel? The apostles were beaten. They were told to keep quiet about Yeshua. Acts 5.40 And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak anymore in the name of Yeshua, and they released them. You know what happened when they left? What happened? They were rejoicing when they left. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy 
to suffer for his name. Can you even imagine that? You get a good flogging and you leave there not crying, God, I thought I was serving you. What is wrong with this? What happened? Why are you letting me go through this? No, they're rejoicing. Then we see the death of Stephen. Saul tried to destroy the church. It says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, talking about Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, that day is emphatic in the Greek text, referring to the day of Stephen being stoned to death. On that day, it says, a great persecution arose in the church in Jerusalem. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women who would put them in prison. The word ravaging here is lumainomai, and it mean, literally means to exercise brutal and sadistic cruelty. Saul's just attacking, trying to stomp the church out. In the midst of all this talk about suffering and persecution in Thessalonians, a major theme arises in these two books. And that theme is the return of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. He's talking about all the suffering they're going through, and then he keeps bringing in this theme of the second coming. This subject is found at the end of every chapter in the first letter. Five chapters at the end of every one of them. Let's look at them. Verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Yeshua, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Who is waiting for his son from heaven? It's the first century Thessalonians. They're waiting. Why? Because he's going to rescue them. That's the theme here. Chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Yeshua at His coming? Paul says they will be in the presence of the Lord at His coming. You go to chapter 3, verse 13. So that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua with all His saints. Again, every chapter. Now, His saints here is literally... Holy ones. When you see the word saints there, you think he's coming with a bunch of Christians. I don't think that's the issue here at all. Holy ones is the angelic beings from the Tanakh. And we see that uh, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. He talks about coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And I think that's a parallel to verse 13. That's what he's talking about. Look at the end of chapter 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, talking about the coming of Christ. And they're rising to meet him. Uh, chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Concerning Christ's return, there's a twofold emphasis of both confident expectation along with the call to live in the readiness and light of his imminent coming. Look at what he says. He says, may your spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved complete. Without blame at the coming. So I think they had this idea they're going to be around when the coming took place. Now as we read the Bible, we've got to keep in mind the hermeneutical principle audience relevance. And this is what we need to teach people, folks. We need to teach them that there's a such thing called hermeneutics. There are rules that govern interpretation. And we teach them about audience relevance. When you read the Bible, this is not written to you. Because most Christians think that's written to them. Okay? And so they say, oh, my spirit's going to be preserved blameless, you know, when he comes. They read all the Bible as if it was written to them. You've got to show them it was written in the first century to real Christians, real people then. 
You know, if you get in the book of Revelation and you do that, that's what I always ask people. Who is the Revelation written to? Now, me, I'm like, really? That's not what it says. Who's it say it's written to? Oh, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he tells those seven churches he's coming soon. He's coming shortly. He ends it with six of those time statements. That's what you got to get them to understand, you know, because we just think the mindset is this came like a newspaper today. And we got to understand, you know, who it's written to. That'll make a huge difference. If, I think if you could just get people to understand audience relevance and give them a Bible, let them go, I think they're going to get it. Now, let me ask you a real difficult question. And this is what we need to ask people. Who are the letters of First and Second Thessalonians written to? Thessalonians of the first century, right? And you're not a Thessalonian. I always ask people, where is the book of the, you know, the believers at the church in Virginia Beach? Where's that book? It's not in there. Why? Because he's not writing it anymore. Aren't you glad? You don't want your name to show up in there? <laughs> like in Philippians? I, I exhort you to, you know, I, you guys, ladies, get together. Stop fighting over there. You know, I don't, I don't need to hear that. Okay. But those ladies, you know, uh, that's a public rebuke there. Well, these young converts in Thessalonica, they're suffering for their faith in Christ. I mean, they're really, they're being persecuted, they're being put to death. So when Timothy comes back to Paul, he reports that there's a lot of suffering going with these new believers. Their property's being confiscated, they're being beaten, they're being imprisoned. Yet in the midst of it all, they're staying true to Christ. They're trusting Him, they're walking with Him. So Paul writes to comfort and encourage them in their faith. The most impressive topic of the Thessalonian Gospel, from what we can gather from these letters, was the coming of the Lord Yeshua and His heavenly kingdom. The letter's loaded with eschatology. It's evidently the topic of frequent conversations when Paul was in Macedonia. Eschatology is a major theological issue, not just in Thessalonians, but in all of Scripture. R.C. Sproul says that two-thirds of the New Testament is either directly or indirectly eschatological. That's a lot of the New Testament, all right? Other experts say that 25 to 30% of the whole Bible is eschatological. Every one of the five chapters in this first book ends with a reference of the second coming. With audience relevance in mind, Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, So they're, they're serving the living God, and they're waiting. How did they wait for his Son? Some commentators say they were waiting in the grave. Were they serving in the grave too? Because they're serving and waiting. They're doing it together. No, they didn't do this from the grave. They're doing it on earth. They're living and breathing and they're waiting for the second coming because it was expected in their lifetime. Now, let me ask them, where would they get the idea that the Lord's going to return in their lifetime? Who taught them that? Well, Paul taught it. Word Paul get He got it from Yeshua. I guess it's the same place people today get it from, right? The Bible, you know, because people today are still waiting. But they got this from Paul. Notice what Yeshua said. Truly I say unto you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. An awesome verse causes a lot of consternation in Christianity, you know. People have tried to take, they tried to change the Greek word there and make it mean race. It doesn't mean race. Generation. It's the same way it's used everywhere else in there. It's the generation of contemporary people. And he's saying, the people I'm talking to, 
you're not going to all pass away until this happens. So that gives us about a 40-year window there, a generation of 40 years. This stuff's going to happen. He tells his disciples all the things he had just mentioned. If you read back through Matthew, you know, he talks about the, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man. It's so clear that it troubles people with a futuristic eschatology. And here's the problem, people. We all come to the Bible with preconceived ideas. And you read this and you know the Lord hasn't come yet. Okay? Or you just know that, right? That's all you're preconceived. And so you read this and you say, something's wrong here. Okay? Because he said he was coming in that generation and he hasn't come yet. Now, in his essays, The World's Last Night, C.S. Lewis, talking about Matthew 24, 34, quotes an objector as saying, now this is a controversial passage here because I've read through this many times, and it's hard to really tell. Is Lewis quoting someone? He seems to be quoting someone here at first. Many people attribute it directly to Lewis, but I think this first quote is an objector, and then Lewis adds to it, so it doesn't matter. What Lewis says is not really good, but he says he says this, the, ap- the apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proved to be false. All right? It's clear. From the New Testament, they are all expected the second coming in their lifetime. I think that is absolutely right on. And they got that, okay? See, they see that. They know the New Testament Christians expected the second coming in their life. And worse still, they had a reason, one which you'll find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. That's pretty embarrassing, right? He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. So they, they knew what he was saying, right? They had a clear understanding of what he said. They didn't try to change it around. They just said, there's a problem. And look at, and he was wrong. So, you know, I mean, that's how you deal with this text. You say, he said he was coming. He didn't come. He was wrong. Yeah. How do they live with this stuff? He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. Poor Yeshua, just a delusion man. He didn't know too much, all right? All right, now, then Lewis says this. This is clearly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. I'm not embarrassed by it. You know, I'm not at all embarrassed by it, because I think it means it's just what it says. He says, yet how teasing also that within 14 words of it should come the statement, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. See, he has a problem with that. Yeshua said, in this generation, but then he says, no man knows the day or the hour. A big difference between a generation and a day and an hour, right? But he has a conflict there. Listen, and the Bible uses the words of a woman having labor, giving a baby. We know when a woman gets pregnant, okay, we got about this much time before she has the baby. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour. Could come late, could come early, but we got a general idea. And that's what he's saying here. It's one of the generation, but no one knows the day or the hour. But Lewis has a real problem with that. He says, the one exception of error... And the other confession of ignorance grow side by side. So you see what he says there? He's calling it an error. The exhibition of error. So Lewis says that what Yeshua said about this generation is embarrassing and he calls it an error. He's got some great writings. But I mean, this trips people up. You know, and I think the reason it tripped him up is because he was being honest. He saw what the text said and he didn't believe it happened. Well, was Yeshua wrong? See, I can't really accept that. If you accept that, throw your Bible out, get rid of Christianity, all right? 
Fortunately, Christ did keep his promise to come within the first century generation. Christ's second coming occurred as he came in the clouds in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 and shut down the old covenant forever. This highly verified historical event signified that sin had finally been atoned for and that it was over. The old covenant was over. The new covenant was consummated and we could live in the presence of God throughout eternity. No separation from God any longer. Because of his physical view, and that's the problem today, we hold on to this physical thing. When when Yeshua comes, here's what he's going to do. He's going to... The globe is going to blow up. It's all going to burn up. He's going to start over new. Give us something new. You know, all this is going to be gone. So we got this view in our head because we don't understand apocalyptic language because we never read the first three quarters of the Bible. We start in the last quarter. Because of the physical view of the second coming, they felt it hadn't happened. Therefore, Yeshua had to be wrong. But that would be, in fact, much more than embarrassing. That would be devastating to the credibility of Yeshua. And if Yeshua is wrong, as Lewis says he was, what else was he wrong about? Is he really the resurrection and the life? How do we know if he was wrong about this? He might be wrong about other things. Well, Yeshua wasn't wrong. I think Lewis was the one that was wrong. I'm pretty comfortable to go with that way, all right? We can count on the truthfulness of what Yeshua says. We just have to understand, well, how did this happen? I mean, he said it was gonna, so obviously it did. Others had trouble with this verse. I mean, Lewis wasn't the only one. The New Jerome Commentary says this. This is a troublesome verse. I give him credit for at least commenting. Some people just skip over it. You know, or they try to, you know, as Schofield tried to rewrite the words in there, you know, try to change definitions. Uh, Robertson Nicole writes this. What is said therein is so perplexing as to tempt a modern, modern expositor to wish it had not been there or to have recourse to critical expedience to eliminate it from the text. In other words, man, I wish that wasn't there. And I wish I could find some text to say, this is not right, this doesn't belong here. He he just wanted to get rid of it. It doesn't fit their eschatology, so let's take that verse out. This verse is devastating to a futurist eschatology. Now, after the first epistle was written, there came a report to Paul about some doctrinal issues they were having. So he wrote a second letter to correct those misconceptions. In the first chapter, he speaks about their suffering. It was real, they were hurting And he wanted to comfort them. And so he comforts them with the doctrine of the second coming. you got to keep that in mind. you got to see that. That's fundamental to understanding this text. He is comforting the suffering by telling them the second coming is happening shortly. Look what he says. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Notice the words there. Their perseverance, their persecution, their affliction, their enduring. He says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. Over and over, he uses language of suffering and persecution. They're enduring. He says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Yeshua shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua. So he comforts them with the doctrine of the second coming. Notice what he says. God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, who were those that afflicted him? 
They were the Jews. The Jews were behind it. They got their own countrymen involved, but the Jews were definitely behind this thing. Verse 7 says that God will give them relief from their suffering. When? When the Lord Yeshua shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. They're going to have relief from their sufferings at the second coming. The Lord would give them relief. He says they give relief to you. Now, commenting on this, John Gill writes this. This designs a rest which remains for the saints after death in the grave and at the coming of the Lord. So what's he saying? God's going to give you rest. You're going to die someday and you'll have rest. Oh, that's great comfort to me. As soon as I die I'll be from this suffering and this persecution, as soon as it puts me to death, I'll have rest. That's nice. I didn't know that, so thanks for telling me. I thought I'd get suffering persecution after I died. I mean, who needs to be told that? Adam Clark's commentary says this, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. And while they have tribulation, you shall have the eternal rest which remains. In other words, you'll get to heaven someday. Okay? So they see Paul's telling the Thessalonians, I know you're suffering, don't worry. Once you die, it'll be better. Is that comforting? Really? You're in the midst of suffering. You're being, you know, tortured for your faith, going through all this. And don't worry, you're going to die. Well, Grant Richardson, I like how he says this. The Thessalonians do not rest in death here. No, the rest is the second coming. Amen. Okay, got that right. If they look forward to the second coming, then they will have a sense of perspective. Now watch this. Although the second coming did not occur in their lifetime... It was their hope. Okay, so the rest is the second coming. The rest promised them, but the rest promised them did not come to them. He goes on to say, us here is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as well as the Thessalonians, they will receive relief and rest at the coming of Christ. But it didn't come in their lifetime, so they never received it. They never got relief. I just, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. The word relief here, onesis, it means relaxation, figuratively relief, ease, liberty, rest. This word's only used five times in the New Testament. Look how Paul uses it elsewhere. For even when we came unto Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, same word, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts within, fears without. We see by its usage that relief is opposed to affliction. All right. So the rest he's promised them is a relief from the affliction. Paul also uses it in 8.13. He says, for this is not for the ease of others, same word rest, and for your affliction, but by way of equality. So he's making a, you know, rest and affliction there. The affliction is going to stop. That's what the rest is about. The Thessalonians were waiting for the coming from heaven. To wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivered them from the wrath to come. Now, the second coming is still future. We have a problem. If Paul was giving them false hope, how can we believe anything Paul says? And I had a couple tell me when I first started teaching this. A couple of lawyers stood up and, you know, confronted me. Said I was of the devil, basically, for teaching this. And then, you know, I said, well, why did they had this clear understanding and we still have this? And they said, because God wanted every generation to believe he was coming so they would live right. So I said, so he really knew he wasn't coming, but he told him he was, right? And they were, yeah, yeah. You're okay with that? 
Deception. God tricked them. I'm going to trick you into living right. You think I'm coming, but I'm not coming. And they were comfortable with that. You know, it's amazing what people will go through to avoid the truth of Scripture. If Paul was giving them false hope, how can we believe anything? If Yeshua did not come in the lifetime of those first century Thessalonians and give them relief from their persecution as promised by Paul, then Paul lied to them. If his prediction failed, he's a false prophet. And worse, he's a cruel false prophet. He's giving them false hope. That's a problem of this text, and it's unavoidable. It really is. When you read the text, it's just so clear. They're going to get relief. It seems that nobody wrote, well, look at this uh, verse in verse 10 here. And to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath. They're waiting for the son from heaven. Now, the Thessalonians had another problem. It seems that somebody wrote one or more fictitious letters and signed Paul's name to them. And it circulated among the Thessalonian church. And the forgery obviously was saying that the second coming already happened. You guys missed it. It happened. It's over. This was causing a lot of difficulty among the believers. So Paul writes the second Thessalonian letter to correct this misunderstanding. Notice what he says in the second Thessalonian letter, chapter 3. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. In other words, he takes the pen from his secretary's amanuensis, and he writes in his own. I, he's saying, listen, you can tell a genuine letter from me because I, I always close it in my own handwriting. I sign it myself. You see that. It's a personal mark in every epistle. So don't be fooled by these other letters. Understand this is what I'm saying. Now, here's the problem. Look at chapter 2. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. All right? Talking about the second coming. Very clearly. Our gathering together him that you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. They're talking about the coming of Christ very clearly here. He says someone has wrote a letter, said it already happened. This verse shatters the physical paradigm. Okay? Very clearly, very simply. It shatters this idea of a physical paradigm. If the Thessalonians thought the second coming was what most Christians today think, a globe-ending, earth-shattering, fiery destruction of the planet that all of a sudden now we're in a new heaven and a new earth, if that was the same, then Paul would have just had to write back and say, what is wrong with you people? Look out the window. You know it hasn't happened. The trees are still there. The grass is still there. People are walking around. Of course it didn't happen. But... Since he had to tell, write to them and tell them it hasn't happened, they must have had a different view of the second coming than we have today. They must have thought it was going to be spiritual. They didn't think there was physical signs they would see. So therefore, they thought it already happened. So Paul just straightens his mouth. He says, come on, it hadn't happened yet. They had an entirely different view than we do. And I think if we can allow a crack In this physical paradigm of a second coming, maybe we can start understanding the scripture. And I think these verses shatter that. They thought it happened. Why? Paul taught them. They knew doctrine. They were sound in the faith. And they thought it was over. Now, if he was teaching what most Christians today are teaching, there's no question here, people. No question whatsoever of what's going on. The second coming was imminent. In the first century, we see it all through the New Testament. The believers at Thessalonica were waiting for the coming of Christ. They were expecting it in their lifetime, and it happened in their lifetime. God gave them rest from their affliction by the destruction of the Jewish temple, the nation, and the people. 
He gave them rest. I really believe that you could get most Christians to agree today that to deny the fact of the second coming is to deny the inspiration of Scripture. The Bible teaches second coming all over. I think most would agree with that. But I also believe that the time of the second coming is as clear as the fact of the second coming. I believe that to deny the time statements in the Bible is to deny inspiration of Scripture. Because they're, they're both there together. And we have to understand that. We have to understand these time statements everywhere. And many people try to attack the time statements because they say, oh, these, you know, these predators, they got it all wrong. Not happening then. You know, we're still waiting. Thessalonians were confused, very confused, if that's true. And so were other, all the new, you know, like I said, they're waiting for it. This was something that was going to happen to them. So we have to understand, you can't just say, I believe in the second coming, so there, no, you have to believe the time statements that give about the second coming and realize this is an event in our past. And it's really said that, like I said, most of the church is looking forward to this. And I think the only way this is going to change is if we start asking questions of those people. Why has it been so long? Make them think. You know, teach them about audience relevance. Give them some principles of hermeneutics. But we have to interact with the culture to change the culture. You know, the Christian culture. We have to interact. We can't just, you know, put on our blinders and stay away. And I don't mean on Facebook, okay? You know, Facebook's not real. I mean, that's not real life there. You know, it's, you know, it's very, very different when you confront people individually and talk to them. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with using Facebook, but, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it just gets a lot of controversy stirred up. And people get really angry when face to face, they don't, they're not like that, you know, but you put yourself, you put them in a room all by themselves with a computer and they're miles away. They can say whatever they want, be as mean as they want. You know, when you're face to face, you, you know, there's a little more civility there. So, so let's try to, I really think that we have to engage people. We have to ask them about this, you know. I got in a conversation with a Christian at the gym about this. It was really interesting. You know, I said, you, you know, because the one guy was wearing a shirt that says, you know, coming soon on the back, it said Jesus. So I pointed out the shirt to him and I said, you think he's coming soon? Yeah. I said, well, let me ask you something. Why? It was soon in the first century. How's it soon now? And you could see the gears start to turn, you know, and he, he, he was throwing stuff out at me and I was deflecting me. It was crazy stuff. You know, he was just trying to come up with an answer that he didn't have, you know. And so finally he goes, I don't know. I'm like, something to think about. And then he goes, I will. I said, okay. <laughs> uh, he kind of voids me at the gym lately. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I just want to make people think, you know, and I think if that's the key, let's start thinking about our Bibles and see where it takes us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, things that seem so clear to us are so not clear to other folks. Lord, I pray you'd give us a humble attitude in dealing with these people that we would not come across as haughty or proud and, and what we know, but we genuinely seek to, to reach others, to help them to see the joy and understanding that our Lord kept his word. Lord, that is so refreshing and it's so disheartening that believers would think you were deceived or you were an heir. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Mm-hmm.